MSW Media. So, Asha, is the judge's finding that there's fraud committed by the Trump organization the end of the Trump organization as we know it? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, um, I'm glad that this fraud trial is getting the attention that it deserves this week because I think that we've become so fixated on criminal liability and people have been fantasizing for so long about seeing Trump in an orange jumpsuit that sometimes it can seem as though these civil suits are irrelevant or don't matter. But this one has some pretty severe implications. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this case in general, Asha, has been um, a forgotten uh, case. Uh, in other words, people have been so focused on these criminal indictments and criminal trials that often this is like an afterthought or a footnote. And I, I really think this is really important. I mean, a typical civil case where you have, let's say, a lawsuit for damages, let's say the E. Jean Carroll case, which is obviously reprehensible conduct. It was a crime, right, to assault someone, sexually assault someone. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's about money. This is about so much more when it comes to potential remedies, uh, potentially you know, a, a, a finding or ruling that the Trump organization can't do business in New York. So very significant. And I really think also that this is a result that we're seeing in part because Trump has so many legal problems elsewhere. In other words, I think Trump's legal team knew that it was facing war on many fronts. And this was sort of like a, a front that they basically had to surrender in, in order to maintain their ability to continue fighting elsewhere. Yeah. And this, I just think it's important to kind of put this in a bundle with other things that we've seen in this category, because again, it's important to look at it in context. I mean, many years ago, I want to say 2018, I believe, or maybe it was 2019, uh, the Trump Foundation was dissolved. Right. The attorney general brought a civil suit against the Trump Foundation because uh, Trump and his eldest children were basically misappropriating money that was intended to be used for charitable purposes for their own use. Um, and that foundation was dissolved. They're not allowed to, I think, run another foundation. And the the children had to go to remedial training on how to be fiduciaries. Um, I think that oh, then the Trump organization was criminally prosecuted. Right. Um, I was going to mention that one. Yeah. Yeah. So they, the Trump organization was criminally prosecuted for engaging in um you know, uh, financial, shady financial transactions. That's the one where Alan Weisselberg um, testified to a limited degree. Uh, and I would put the Alvin Bragg 
case against Trump kind of in this category because what is being alleged there is criminal liability for falsification of business records. Um, that's what all the counts are. And again, all of this is of a piece with what is being alleged here, which is, again, involves a Trump organization and their fraudulent practices of inflating the worth of their properties for purposes of getting a loan, deflating them for purposes of paying taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So the only quibble I'll have with this, I mean, I, I generally agree with the thrust of what you just said, is really, to me, it comes down to the penalties. In other words, you know, th- there was, as you point out, this felony conviction uh, of the Trump organization. And there, it was, the penalty was, what, a million-something dollar fine? It's like something pretty pretty trivial, right? And similarly, um, I I think, you know, the... When, when you when you look right now at the Bragg case, the criminal case you just mentioned, I've certainly heard from many practitioners, including former assistant district attorneys in from Manhattan, who tell me uh, that's the sort of thing doesn't get prison time because it's the lowest level of felony, and that you know it's just it's it's not the sort of case that they thought they thought would likely get significant prison time or if any prison time at all. That said, you can have financial cases that can be. Um, very, very significant and carry massive penalties. I mean, we're going to probably talk a little later in the podcast about one going on right now that's going to involve decades in prison. And certainly it's possible to have a fraud case that does that. I've tried some of them myself, but this is not um, not one of them. This is not a criminal case at all, but it's obviously the conduct is wide ranging and it's significant. Yeah. I only pointed out the other ones because there's so much going on and there's been so much going on that it may be difficult to see where this particular New York case fits into the context of other cases that civil and criminal cases that have been brought against Trump and the Trump organization that encompass similar types of activity and financial misfeasance and fraud, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think it, the jury's out on the Manhattan DA criminal case. In other words, some people think that there's going to be serious prison time there. I, you know, there, you know, uh, there's at least one former ADA who has made that claim. That remains to be seen. But regardless, uh, I think the point is that's not what most people are focused on, right? We've had so many podcast episodes talking about the January 6th case, talking about Georgia, talking about Mar-a-Lago, these very, very serious cases that are going to carry significant criminal penalties. And this case really hasn't re- received the focus that perhaps it deserves. And I and I think people are starting to realize, oh, this is a real thing. And I think also for Trump and his legal team, this is another problem they have to deal with. This is a lengthy trial. And they either have to admit wrongdoing um, or they have to fight it at trial and fighting at a trial means a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of fighting. And really their hands are tied in many respects because he's indicted criminally elsewhere. So, you know, one piece of this that's very interesting and I'd written a long, I think a year ago or so for uh, Politico, I wrote a column about this is the fact that he took the fifth. Um, and Eric Trump took the fifth hundreds of times, who was, I believe the, was over, you know, running the Trump organization at that time means that they basically were sacrificing on liability in this case, um, you know, in order to sort of not get jammed up in subsequent cases, uh, criminally. 
Yes. And I guess let's just quickly go over what this case is is about. Um, I mentioned the substance about this is about the inflation and value and inaccurate representation. And the court has already found Trump liable on one of the seven counts, which was basically a fraud statute that essentially requires the state to show that um, he was misrepresent that he made false statements in these financial statements and that he did them on a persistent and continuing basis. And basically the judge said, yes, that happened, that that has been shown on the face of these pleadings that that's happened. But this trial, which is a bench trial, which means that it's just the judge that's deciding these questions, that on the second to seventh counts that have been alleged, there is their evidence is being presented because those counts involve an intent requirement um, where you have to show, where the AG has to show that the defendant knew that their conduct was unlawful. And so that's what these witnesses are uh, there to, to show or to refute. I just want to make kind of what that, what is going on right now, because we have the big thing about he was found liable, but there's things that still are outstanding. That's really helpful because I think one misimpression that's out there, Asha, is that there's no liability issues left. In other words, that this is all about damages or something along those lines. Definitely the remedies piece of this, in other words, what the judge is going to do to re- to remedy and resolve this, the, the uh, misconduct here, that is still on the table. But in addition, as you point out, there's still a lot of liability issues here that, you know, that said, obviously the judge's ruling really puts the defense in a tough spot. So if, uh, you know, this is a typical case, if I was defending some fortune 500 company that was being accused of this and I was trying to figure out how to deal with it, I would basically be telling my client, look, our decider, as you point out, Asha is the judge. It's not like 12 random jurors or something. And and so accordingly, we've got to win this guy over. And he's already found that we've committed pretty significant misconduct. There's, you know, fraud or you can call it maybe if, you know, for those who are who um, um, uh, are, uh, you know, comparing this other statutes, maybe it's fraud light of a sort uh, to uh, to uh, because of what you just said in terms of the requirements. But nonetheless, the judge has already found that. So you kind of have to buy into the fact that, like, Judge, we understand your concern about this, but, but you know, here we did this, but not that sort of thing. Like, you know, we're, we, you know, something along those lines. And you you kind of almost have to have adopt a tone where you're like, look, yes, we're not perfect, but we didn't do this, and you know, the they, you know, we don't deserve the highest penalties because of that, you know, for that reason. That would be the way to have a path to victory in this case. But it's very fair to say that that is not the path that Trump and his legal team have chosen. Um, and I, I think it's, it's you know, my conclusion about it, which I've, I've kind of said publicly, um, you know, is that I don't really think that the, you know, the opening statements, which we heard the other day, or, or anything that we've seen thus far from the Trump team is, are designed to achieve any sort of legal victory in this case whatsoever. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and it looks like for... The New York Attorney General, 
their star witness is going to be Michael Cohen, who's going to say, yeah, they totally knew what they were doing when, when they were doing this. In fact, this whole case, I believe arose from his testimony to Congress many years ago, where he basically said, this is what he does. Uh, you know, he inflates the value of his properties and, you know, for, for purposes that advantage him. One thing I think it's important to maybe discuss is there's been some suggestion that Trump's lawyer screwed up by not requesting a jury trial and that this is a bench trial. But then I understand that for the particular statute, or at least one, at least the main statute that is being as it is at issue, it can only a lawsuit can only be brought in equity. An equity jurisdiction is a separate thing. It's it's about fairness. It's about making the party that has been harmed whole, um, and that in such cases you don't actually have a right to a jury trial, or it's not available. It's only a bench trial. So I'm not sure who to credit in that. Well, I'm going to give you credit for bringing up Thank the you. distinction between law and Thank equity, you. which is complicated. Uh, and the sort of thing that even when you go, even a lot of lawyers don't fully understand. I don't think it's worth the time to go into all of that now, but the the, the I think at a very high level, the way I would explain it to people is, in in many states, there are a division in the courts where there are certain courts or divisions of courts that you go to to seek, let's say, monetary damages when you've been harmed. And there's another set of courts that you go to if you are trying to obtain what's called equitable relief. In other words, you want the judge to order something that's going to make you whole, like, oh, I don't know, restrain this person from doing this you know, evil thing that they're doing to me and my business or something along those lines. Here, the the vast majority of the relief being sought is, as you to put, you know, as you put, as you're suggesting, is equitable. I think the the bottom line is, it it you know, it it sure looks like from a distance that there's a very good argument that Trump would never have been entitled to a jury trial. And I think the, my takeaway from all of the stuff on social media, you know, attacking his attorneys. Um, you know, about not seeking a jury trial is just that it, 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 it's sort of like a legal and, you know, kind of, we've talked about the so legal analysis can sometimes run awry on the internet. Um, and, you know, certainly his attorneys are not very good, but I, you know, um, but I don't think that this is something I'd fault him for. What I would say actually is that, you know, two things, there's two big things that are going on here strategically for the Trump team. One is this is essentially a, you know, they're, they're fighting a multi-front war and they had to kind of give up on certain fronts. And this is one where I just think even, even if you had a rational defendant who was pursuing a typical rational strategy and I was fighting on behalf of that defendant defending it, this would be like the case you just have to lay down on because it's not criminal. And ultimately your, your client's time behind bars is more important than these remedies, even though they're devastating remedies against his businesses. And second of all, you know, the reality is the, uh, the type of defense you would have to mount that I laid out a moment ago is not consistent with Trump's other goals, right? I mean, in other words, coming out there and be like, yeah, we're dishonest, uh, but, um, not that dishonest. Um, well, is a great, a great way of reducing your liability if your business is trying to save as much money as possible. 
Um, really what Trump's trying to do is keep the con going for as long as possible so he can keep getting donations and keep running for president. And, um, you know, that means he's got to call it all a witch hunt and, and do all of that stuff. Right. So just a couple of points on the equitable jurisdiction piece, just so people also can make some links to other things. Part of what Judge Cannon did that was wrong, among many things, in the Mar-a-Lago case, when Trump was trying to get her to appoint a special counsel, was that she was exercising her equitable jurisdiction. She was asserting this very extraordinary power of the court to exercise jurisdiction over his request. And that's what the Court of Appeals shot down and said that was an abuse of her discretion because it was not a circumstance where such um, that that kind of jurisdiction was warranted. So just to kind of put that out there, um, because people might have missed that in the in the Cannon case. And I think what you're talking about with regard to Trump's strategy, or or lack thereof, at least in court, really gets to, I think, what will be an ongoing tension for him, which is the tension between the court of law and the court of public opinion, and how the interests in both of those are going to be sometimes at odds for him. Um, because as you said, to admit wrongdoing in one venue could harm him in another. And I think you're absolutely right about the con. Again, just to make a connection to a previous case, you know, one of the things that in that Trump foundation case, you know, th- that involved some of his campaign events where he was getting money, for example, where he r- was, quote unquote, raising money for veterans. And then he basically funneled that into his own campaign and, and coffers. So, yeah, there's a grift piece of this that he's got to keep going and he can't afford to admit any wrongdoing in order to, you know, if he wants to kind of maintain that public front. Yeah, the the Trump brand in many ways is never to admit wrongdoing. You know, this guy has appointed everyone from General Milley, who he recently attacked, you know, to, uh, you know, his, you know, Gener- General Kelly, who was former chief of staff, who's blasted him, to Bill Barr, who, uh, or Bob, uh, yeah, Bill Barr, who, you know, has gone on cable shows attacking him and saying that he thinks there's a real, there's a really righteous indictment of him in Mar-a-Lago, to all sorts of people, right, who are very critical of him. And he just... He's never wrong. You know, he's always right. That's his, his brand. And that really limits his legal team. His legal team, and I don't pity them because they signed up for this. They're getting paid for this. This is what they're doing. But, you know, his legal team essentially signed up for something where their hands are completely tied. They only have one argument, which is say they did nothing wrong and everything was right and everything was perfect. And when that doesn't match up with the situation they face in the courtroom, they just have to continue to stick to the strategy no matter what. Yeah. So what are, speaking of the Trump brand and the implications for it, what's the spectrum of financial liability that we're looking at in terms of, so I, I thought that the baseline here was something like $250 million in, in fines. Um, but what we're looking at again, if this is a court of equity, this is really about making the state of New York whole, right? So looking at once they establish liability, how much Trump, the Trump organization benefited and profited and then disgorging those profits. Is that really what this comes down to? 
Like they'll have to make a calculation in terms of how much they made and and, and giving that back. I, I think uh, the biggest piece of this, Asha, is going to be the non-monetary relief. Oh, the non doing not doing business in New York again. Yeah, I mean, in in so essentially already, I mean, the judge has said, okay, we're gonna we're going to revoke the the certificates on your right. LLCs. So just so everyone understands that, uh, you know, I've in the real estate world, I've prosecuted and represented a lot of people in that world. You typically have lots of different business uh, entities that are that you that that uh, exist. So a, a real estate company for each piece of real estate usually have a separate LLC. Well, essentially what the judge has said is like the LLCs that own very significant properties for Trump are like dissolved essentially. And he's appointing what's called a receiver to take control of them and to disperse the assets. So essentially you could have, let's just say hypothetically, an entity that owns Trump Tower. If the judge is like, okay, that that entity no longer exists and we're going to have to, I'm appointing uh, Asha Rangappa to figure out um, what to do with Trump Tower? Um, that's a humongous problem uh, for Trump. Like it's a huge inconvenience and it's a significant issue. And if the judge says you can't do business in New York and you can't buy real estate in New York and this and that, that that becomes a major problem. And you know, I, I when I often represent clients who have issues because the government will noisily conduct investigations. You know, I, I mean, I'd say with their perspective might be in order to disrupt their businesses, right? Like, okay, let's, you know, uh, let's make sure the paper's aware of this very, you know, subpoena we're sending to this public organization or, well, let's raid your office or do something where it's very apparent that you're being investigated. That usually has massive consequences for a business, massive consequences for your lenders, your employees, like who wants to work at a company that's got all sorts of legal problems, who want, you know, who wants to loan money to or such, such people. So I just think like, this is the sort of thing that if this was the only legal problem Trump had, it would be an all consuming legal problem for him and his businesses. And it really says something that, you know, we've spent a lot of time, Asha, I don't know, a hundred hours, a bazillion hours, uh, insurmountable, uncountable number of hours talking about Trump's legal problems. And we barely scratched the surface of this case. Yes. Well, this is one to keep an eye on. I think that's the big takeaway and it's going to hit, you know, I will just add this just from a, I know what you're saying that his lawyers may feel like this is not the one that is where the resources need to go. But I will say that in terms of Trump's narcissistic personality, this is the one that will, I think, hurt him the most in terms of his self-image because so much of his self-identity and brand is wrapped up in his financial worth and what people perceive to be his financial worth. And um, I think that, you know, just from that ego standpoint, this is going to be something that is going to keep him up at night. Uh, I clearly, look, he showed up in, in court mm-hmm. at trial, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? He didn't give e. e. Jean Carroll that level of dignity um, to, you know, actually have him in court. And here he was in court dealing with this. That was interesting. He felt the need to specifically address this case. You know, I, I that said, uh, he, um, you know, I think he is, 
really in a situation where the die is cast here, you know, taking the fifth really screws you in the civil context because in the criminal context, the, the jury doesn't even hear about it. It's all like a secret. You're, you can invoke the fifth amendment and they, the government just can't use that in any way. But in a civil case, the jury's instructed, or in this case, the judge knows, and the judge is told that he can have an adverse inference from that. And so all these depositions, we saw clips of some of them in the openings from the, from the government, from the uh, attorney general's office. The reality is that, uh, they've already taken the fifth. They've already said what they've they've said. They kind of are locked in. And I think they were afraid to do more because remember the Manhattan DA originally was going to indict this criminally. This is the case that there was all this brouhaha that the Manhattan DA passed up and instead took the hush money case. I will say this case to me seems stronger than the hush money case. Uh, it's a case I'd rather charge if I was, uh, the DA in Manhattan, you know, what do I know? I'm not a Manhattan lawyer, but it, it on, uh, you know, looking at it from afar, uh, this, this looks like a stronger case, but I think they, they did not want, they being the Trump and Trump organization and his family did not want to give any ammunition to the DA. Maybe, but also it sounds like maybe without Weisselberg being willing to testify, they would have had to rely on Michael Cohen, and they might have felt that in the criminal context where the burden of proof is higher uh, to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that there would have been enough daylight for Trump and his lawyers to, you know, impeach Cohen and get him off versus the New York AG who has to only prove this by preponderance of the evidence. And, you know, I think that they're going to go after Michael Cohen there too. Um, I will add one more thing with on the financial implications here for Trump, which is just to keep, you know, I'm always thinking about national security implications, which is, you know, if his business is obliterated through this case and then he is elected president, he is going to be that much more vulnerable to, in my opinion, incentives to make money. Um, and or to treat the U.S. Treasury as his personal piggy bank and find ways of enriching himself at the country's expense. That's just my take, um, again, because I think money is so important to him and our adversaries especially know that. And if he is in the poorhouse, um, it only makes it much easier to exploit that vulnerability. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he'll, you know, he'll never be in the poorhouse like a lot of and normal people are, but he's definitely going to be in a troubled economic state facing the loss of, you know, what he not only built, but inherited right from his father. He didn't sound like he started with nothing. He started with a lot. Um, and he's also potentially going to be a convicted felon. And this is the Republican candidate for president. Uh, what a, what a, what a choice uh, the American people are going to have uh, in this upcoming year. Unbelievable. So, speaking of potential convicted felons, <laughs> we're going to take a little de- like I guess not a detour. We're going to look at a parallel track at the trial against Sam Bankman-Fried, and we've talked about FTX in one of our very early episodes. And um, I love 
I love these cases, like him and Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, I'm fascinated by, especially when they're like young like that. And it's just like, what were you thinking? But also to look at some parallels between the things that are happening in that case and some of the stuff that we were seeing in the Trump cases. Yeah, that, that that's right. I mean, we're, so we're um, recording this on the third, this jury selection starting today, big trial. Um, this is, a, you know, something that's keeping me busy in terms of interviews and commentary. A lot of, there's a lot of interest in this trial and the, in the financial world, because the, the technology underlying crypto is going to probably be around for a long time and, you know, whatever form it's in. And this is sort of a big case, uh, um, in, uh, you know, early case in terms of criminal enforcement. And by the way, the amount of money at stake is massive. You know, this guy was supposedly worth, you know, uh, all sorts of monopoly money. Uh, you know, one of the richest people in, in the world, supposedly, uh, now not so much, you know, you mentioned Elizabeth Holmes, Asha, one thing that I think is a really interesting parallel, by the way, between SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, and Elizabeth Holmes is these are two people who were supposedly visionaries who were marketed. Not only are they were they supposedly some of the you know wealthiest people, but they were these like young visionaries who built wealth at some young age and they did something that like the rest of us couldn't do. Um, and of course it turns out that they both were just huge fraudsters and, uh, yeah. fooled us all. Does Sam Bankman Freed go to Stanford too? Well, his parents, uh, so I, I don't remember. His parents are, were law professors at Stanford, at Stanford Law School. Um, and they've got their own problems. They've been sued actually by the, the, there's been an appointment of a new CEO of FTX and on behalf of victims, he's suing them saying that some of the money that they received was, uh, you know, obtained via fraud. Illegally obtained. Yeah. And so to recap on just the facts, and you'll know them better than me, Sam Bankman-Fried basically came up with his own cryptocurrency. Yeah. So what happened was, yeah. So FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange, one of the biggest in the world. What I mean by exchange is you put your money in and then you can buy and sell crypto and trade it like you do on E-Trade or something with stocks. Okay. That was the idea. And you're right. He did come up with his own cryptocurrency. And part of, you know, what he was doing is essentially said you had to use that cryptocurrency to pay, um, to pay fees on FTX. And then he was essentially overvaluing, um, that currency. So that was one thing that he was doing. But I'd say the, the, to make it very simple for our, um, for our listeners here, I mean, one thing he was doing is it said when you put your money in to FTX, there was an agreement that said this money is yours. It is available for your withdrawal at any time. And then there Can't was a be used for anything else. Yada, yada. And then actually he was just using it for all sorts of stuff, including um, having an unlimited line of credit to his girlfriends and a paramours um, trading firm called Alameda Research. And so, um, you know, that's not what he was intended to do. Some of it was also used uh, for bribes in China. Some of it was used for political donations in the United States. Um, and some of it was used to prop up this currency you mentioned. Uh, the, uh, it's called FTT to try because he had huge stake in it to try to, um, you know, artificially inflate the value of that. So all of that's coming out in this trial very difficult defense for him. And he's looking at many decades in prison, given the amount of, of money involved. 
Yeah, and so basically he was running kind of a Ponzi scheme, right? Like, he's getting the money, he's using it to uh, invest in, or to buy other stuff. Um, And from what I remember, there was some competitor of his who saw or knew that this was all sketchy and started a run on FTX from the investors and basically was like, we're ca- I'm cashing in. And everybody tried to cash in. And at that point, it became clear that mm-hmm. the money was not there to to cash out. You have a good memory. Yeah. What happened was essentially um, there was essentially um, there was an article that was published. Actually, I, kudos to a, a publication called Coindesk, which covers that uh, kind of a news organization that covers that industry and a very impressive piece of journalism. They kind of published something that revealed some of the issues there. And then that got a lot of people concerned. And then an investor came in, okay, we're going to buy, buy a bunch of this. And then they're like, uh, no, we're not. We looked at the book, like we looked at the books. We had nothing to do with this. And that scared the hell out of everyone. And then everything collapsed very quickly and went to bankruptcy. Um, and so, uh, you know, now, of course, very quickly within weeks of that DOJ indicted, um, also, the SEC and the CFTC and other regulatory agencies both filed suits all on the same day. Massive effort, tens and you know, tens and tens of different government attorneys on it, many of which I know and have worked with. Um, but it's it's it was it's very much like you know we talk about in the the uh, in the Trump cases, like Jack Smith, kind of having these fast moving cases. This is similar. This is a case where he got indicted right away, and he like Trump went on a speaking tour. I mean, his, his way of dealing mm-hmm. with being under, you know, indictment and facing these problems was like, I'm going to start giving interviews. I'm going to go talking to everyone I possibly can in the press. Um, and you know, he has basically put himself on the record on every possible point you could imagine related to this trial. Um, and he ultimately, you know, what, in addition to that was talking while he was on bond and got himself in trouble for doing that. Yeah, you know, there there was this uh, relationship advice that I remember hearing at some point that I think applies to Trump and Sam Bankman-Fried, which is you're never going to talk your way out of something that you behave your way into. <laughs> true. That is very true. And you get the sense that these people, and we've seen this even with Senator Bob Menendez, like they think they're going to like talk their way out of it and... Here's a PSA. Just shut up if you get indicted. Absolutely. And the problem, you know, from a federal rules evidence perspective is your good, your helpful statements don't get, and we've talked about this in the Trump context, you can't introduce those helpful statements. The government can introduce the hurtful ones. And right. And so in this trial, like one question I keep getting asked by journalists is, will Sam Bankman free take the stand? And of course he's going to take the stand because this guy can't shut up. I mean, that's basically, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for his lawyers to keep him off the stand. The problem is as soon as he takes the stand, they're going to hit him with all the greatest hits, right? All of his most harmful statements are going to be used against him. And it just really puts him in a very tough spot. In addition, like Trump, we were talking earlier in the podcast about how Trump's image and persona limits his defense. 
And the same is true for Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried has portrayed himself for, for as long as I can remember as this visionary who's smarter than everyone else and has sees all these things that you and I don't see. And so presenting himself as like this, this dumb young kid who's in over his head and wasn't paying attention and didn't read all these legal disclaimers and didn't really know what he should have and shouldn't have been doing – uh, very difficult given the image. He's just like Trump, right? Trump's not going to want to go out there and be like, I was in over my head and had no idea and wasn't paying attention. I was inattentive and I was a bad businessman. He's not going to want to say that. And and that's the problem for these folks is that the best defense is really to humble themselves. And that's just not part of their, um, not part of their DNA. I'm just imagining this reality show where we have an island and we can put like Trump and Sam Bankman-Fried and Elizabeth Holmes and Elon Musk and all these people like all together and see what happens. Kind of like a Lord of the Flies situation. It might happen just late in life. It's sort of like how, you know, (laughs) we got to see a lot more of, you know, Coolio, may he rest in peace, after when he was no longer doing Gangsta's Paradise and he was just the guy who had done that 20 years ago, right? So maybe some there'll be some point in the future when everyone's out of prison and, you know, if if Trump's still around. This will be their money-making opportunity. Yeah, you got to reinvent, you know, exactly. You got you to gotta do what you got to do, trade on your inf- fame or infamy or whatever. One thing I do, I do think is really fascinating that is a similarity and a difference with uh, Trump and SBF is that SBF was so mad at the witnesses that were up against him, one of which, by the way, is Paramore, who was one of his closest business associates and the head of this Alameda research. She is, you know, flipped on him and she's testifying for the feds. He released her diary to the New York Times containing a lot of her personal details in part to attack her credibility and show, you know, a different side of her, but partly perhaps to get back at her. Um, not that unlike some of the sort of things that Trump is doing to the people who are uh, potentially arrayed against him. Uh, and that's why uh, SBF is in prison and actually has been preparing, <laughs> preparing for trial from prison and is not happy about that and writing all sorts of, you know, filing all sorts of motions about how he can't prepare adequately in prison. You know, that's an, it's an interesting counterpoint in parallel to some of the discussion you and I have been having about the gag order in the Trump case. Yes. And I think it kind of highlights how Trump is getting a lot more leeway than even notorious defendants who are similarly situated. I agree with that. I mean, I think that part of it, and I'm interested, I'd be interested in your take on this, Asha. I think part of it is that in the, let's say in the January 6th case in particular, Trump is, you know, Trump is a candidate for president and he's attacking other public figures about issues that are not only criminal, but are also very, um, uh, political and of great concern to the, to the public because the indictment is about trying to overturn the, you know, you know, the presidential election. And so I think there are first amendment concerns when you say to the, former president of the United States, like you can't publicly attack the for, the former chief of staff, uh, you know, chief of staff of the military, jo- chairman of the joint chief of staff, excuse me, of the military versus, you know, this, some crypto billionaire saying you can't attack your ex-girlfriend. Yes. But I would say the flip side of that coin is that he has the ability to mobilize people in a way that Sam Franklin free doesn't. I mean, when he's calling on people, when he's call, when he's saying that the former chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff should be executed, there are some followers of his who take that as an order. 
I uh, I hear you. I think as a practical matter, um, Trump is, you know, uh, posing a threat. Um, that said, if I was prosecuting Trump, I would be, uh, I do what Jack Smith is doing in terms of trying to ask for a gag order and so on, but I would be doing so with the knowledge that the judge um, is likely going to absorb what I'm saying and that'll be, have an impact on her, but likely won't grant my request. Uh, because she doesn't want to deal with the thorny legal issues involved. Yeah, and to bring this full circle to the first segment, it sounds like no protesters really showed up in front of his fraud trial. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I really think people, and this is how criminal prosecution does have an impact, is I think all the prosecutions of folks in January 6th have made folks on the right. I mean, a lot of Trump's supporters are telling, telling his followers, like, don't show up. They're going to come get you. Uh, they're going to prosecute you up in, you know, up in New York, that sort of thing. I think that's had an impact. Um, and, and by the way, you know, what, one thing I will note is interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, armies at one point in time, Asha, when this was all first going down, there were lots and lots of people, um, who really believed in, SPF. It's interesting how quickly things turn, how quickly public opinion shifts. It's going to be fascinating to see as things change for Trump, will there be a shift there? In other words, when he's no longer, you know, on the path to the White House and he's, you know, more of a has-been, if if and when that happens, uh, will there be a a shift in, in opinion by his base? It'll be very interesting to see. So, Renato, before we go, you know, I feel like what you read in your free time gives insight into your personality. And one of the genres that I read in my free time are self-help books. Okay. On a number of different fronts. I'm kind of a self-help junkie. So, a lot of productivity books, a lot of... Uh, relationship books on, you know, psychology and relationships, things like that. Um, I find them all fascinating. What's, are, are you a self-help junkie? Yes. I, you know, it's interesting. I'm very obsessive about self-improvement. Like I've mm-hmm. changed a lot in my life. Uh, I probably don't resemble at all in any way the person I was like 15 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of, what I do, I actually, I, I kind of agonize all the time about what I could do better and what I could do wrong. I'm really focused on like efficiency. I use so much, I use, try to use every minute of my time. I think mm-hmm. ever since I had some times where I had health issues, I was like very focused on like, Hey, I got limited time. So let's use it all. So yeah, I do focus on a lot of the same stuff, like how to be more productive, how to be more successful at doing things. So I'm very focused on learning. And I think, People who are not self-reflective um, uh, really lose a lot. And, and I think that's actually a sign of somebody who is not successful and is not able to get the most out of themselves in their life. I'm really big on that. Yeah. In fact, one of the self-help books that I've read that really had an impact on me was one, I think it's called The Growth Mindset. Hmm. Um, but I can, we can look it up and add it into the notes for the, the episode. But basically it was talking about the difference between 
a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And a growth mindset is this idea that you can improve, that you're able to assess where you are and you see that you can get better at some things. And for people with a growth mindset, failure isn't debilitating because it's actually a feedback loop that tells them, okay, this is some a place where I need to work harder. Fixed mindset people believe that where they are is, you know, that's as far as they can go. And so failure can be very, um, you know, difficult for them because for them, it's like a confirmation that, that they can't get any better and that they're not good enough. In other words, they don't foresee that there's space to, to grow or improve. Um, and so I think that it's, it's good to, to kind of be interested in ways that you can be better in whatever area of your life. Right. Um, and I, I agree. Like I like to figure out ways that I can structure my day so that I'm more productive, uh, or able to utilize my time a lot better. Um, but also I think just ways that I can be a better person, a better mom, a better partner, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that, you know, for me, I, I was saying that I, don't even resemble myself from, I mean, 15 years ago, I weighed like 368 pounds. I hit, you know, before I started as a federal prosecutor in 2007, I had like not really argued anything in court ever. Um, I just was a different person, right? Like you just, you, you, but I was very focused on becoming something I wasn't. And I think that you can improve and you can change. There is something really beautiful about personal growth. And uh, people who miss out on that, um, I think, and it really believe that they're sort of, they are kind of where, who they are and what they are. I think they're missing out. And for me, I will tell you, Asha, like, I am not only big on all sorts of things that I want to try to do and improve. And I kind of recognize my own weaknesses, uh, which the, of course there are plenty. I'm sure, uh, you know, some that I'm aware of, some of them that I'm not, but I think, um, for me being, you know, frankly, being like, for example, a better husband, is an important part of things as well. Like I, you know, I'm, I've been divorced. Like, you know, part of, part of my goal, one of my goals is to sort of be the best partner I can be. And I think one thing I've learned over time is devoting time to making sure that I work on myself, improve myself. Um, it's important just like working out, right. I try to put effort into that, like improving the other parts of my, my mindset, my body, I think all of that is, you know, it's all equally important. What are some of your favorite books? Wow. Self-help, self-help sort of books. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Hmm. It's, I'll... it, it has been a while. I, I have to say that, um, I'm just trying to think about it because I, they, it was something that I, I read, I like, I read that genre a lot when I was, like 10 years ago, but lately, like I'm very focused on self-improvement, but I have not, I mean, one of the consequences, I will just say one consequence of my life right now of how it's been is I'm constantly making use of every spare minute I have. And yet I don't have enough time to read and that Mm -hmm. read books. And I think it's, it's something that bothers me, but I have to, the problem is to change that. I've got to 
change up my life and free up my life in some way. And it's not entirely congruent with selling my time in six minute increments to clients and also doing all this other stuff. But it's, it's a bigger problem that I've got to deal with in my life. I spend time thinking about things that are problems in my life. And that's what probably my, my biggest one right now. Yeah. So I agree with you on the reading front. Um, one thing I tried to do, I read a book called 5A A Miracle. And I thought huh. I could get up at 5 a.m. And, you know, there's all these people who are like, I get up at 5 a.m. And I, like, finish my whole day before, hmm. you know, 8 o'clock. That was just not going to happen. So one of the things I like is, like, looking at strategies and then trying them out and deciding that's not going to work. But what I did do is I went to a sleep coach who introduced me wow. to the concept of sleep compression. So what? now I go to bed a little bit later. I was actually going to bed too early go to bed later so I get better sleep in a lesser period of time. And even if I get up at like seven o'clock or something, not five mm-hmm. o'clock, but I read at night before I go to bed. That's interesting. a little bit. Just even if, honestly, even if it's just a couple of pages, like I feel like I've read something, it's relaxing. Mm. Um, and I'll throw some of my favorite books out there. Atomic Habits. I really like. Whoa. Okay. That's a this good is one. Itching. What, and what is Atomic Habits? Atomic Habits tells you how you can build habits. So it gives you like different Mm. strategies. Like if you're trying to develop a habit, you know, things like habit stacking, like you add a habit to something that you automatically do every day. So um, I've kind of fallen off the wagon on this, but um, so, okay, a confession here. I drink a lot of coffee in the morning and sometimes my coffee gets cold and I do zap it in the microwave, uh, to keep, to, to heat it up, like over the course of like two or three hours, I'm like pouring and, and zapping. And I wanted to improve my push-up. So I stacked a habit where I would do a push-up every time I zap my coffee in the microwave. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and then, you I know, drink... at the end of the day, I would have done several push-ups. No matter what I do. Okay. I, I, it's interesting. So I, I am a huge coffee drinker. I drink way too much coffee. It's actually an issue for me right now. Like it's not good for my heart that I'm drinking so much coffee. Um, but I, it's interesting because to get more efficiency in my day, I do high intensity workouts with my trainer and then I'm not doing as much physical activity the rest of the day. It's not, I don't know if it's good or bad, but that's, that's what I'm trying to do. But that's, that's super, that's super interesting. In yeah. Terms so of, you can have it stacked. You can just like do like, like it's just a push up, right? So it's not hard to do. And just doing one while I'm zapping for 20 seconds, like I get, I get, I start, you know, doing them. Um, what is, what's some other books that I like? Uh, I like the book Attached. I think that was a very hmm. profound, it's about attachment theory. Oh, that's okay. Like, really okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's like, is that a kind of a behavioral economic sort of thing? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, um, psychology. Okay. It's basically about how, so there's a whole area of psychology that talks about attachment and that, however, you, the attachment style that you adopt very early in life becomes your template for your relationships later. Wow. I'll just leave it there. It's really, it was really fascinating. Um, yeah, that is, uh, that is super interesting. I'm somebody, I love sort of, I'm really big on trying to understand the human mind. I think it's having a really high EQ is such a big 
part of not only sort of being successful in my job and everything, but it's also, I think, a big part of understanding myself. Like I, I've kind of figured out the things that I'm good at doing and the, the, the sort of ways in which I work well and don't work well. And I try to mold my entire life and work around sort of doing things in a manner that makes me successful. And having kind of, I even sort of bring in helpers in different spots in my life to sort of help me get myself on, you know, in certain tracks so that I can be more efficient and get more done. Well, let me, let me give you another recommendation. Okay. This is good. This is good stuff. I'm taking note. Yeah. The Productivity Project. I listened to this one on tape and this one was really good. It's this guy and he basically experimented for a year with all of these different productivity techniques. Um, but one that was a big takeaway for me is to figure out your own kind of ebb and flow of energy during the day. Mm-hmm. And then you structure your, the things that you do in a way that aligns with that ebb and flow. So for me, I've realized I have, if I'm writing like my Substack or whatever, I have to do that in the early part of the day. It's just not going to happen later. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I can work out later because I will find motivation to do that later in the day. If I spend time in the morning working out, then I've cut into my writing time and then I'm not going to get everything done that I need to get done. That's such the opposite of me. So I work out in the morning because if I don't work out in the morning, I end up filling up my day and coming up with excuses not to work out. So I get up. I usually get up at 6.45 now. I used to get up at 6. Um, and I go and work out in the morning and do to get that done before my day starts. And I tend to write actually better when I have uninterrupted time late in the day. So when other people are like, okay, this is whatever, non-work time, that's when I can write. I run yeah. and catch up on things. I can't, I can't write later. And so, and then I've also figured out ways where I can combine. So like when I'm watching, in late afternoon or early evening, like, you know, catching up on the news on TV, I combine that with like the mindless tasks that don't require mental energy, like folding my laundry or, you know, kind of combing through my inbox uh, to get rid of emails that, you know, don't require a lot of thought. Yeah, you're, we got to talk, another episode, we got to talk about your zero inbox strategy. Okay. Cause I, I'm the opposite. So I am like, I am not like a detail person at all uh, with that sort of thing. I mean, I, I can do it and I had to do it at certain points in my career when I was a federal prosecutor and it was just me, uh, doing a lot of cases on my own. But now like my inbox, I get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails a day. And so I just, you know, I have other people helping me keep track of the other, all the emails I get. And they certainly don't get uh, deleted. Uh, They get moved around, uh, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, I have no control over that at all. The delete button is your friend. We'll, We'll discuss the Asha method to get to Inbox Zero in a future episode. Stay tuned. 